Um, so Ross, you're in my, uh, my office, my podcasting suite. What do we have going on tomorrow? Uh, we're going on a canoe trip tomorrow. Um, we're going to be paddling down the current river, camping on the beach, probably having some good old fun, maybe exploring some caves. Mm. Really, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn in it tomorrow. Do you like word association games? I'm okay. Do you like games in general, or are you all business? I like (laughs) games that I can win. So I thought of it as a little primer, a little game, where you think of a word, phrase, sentence that makes you, like, uncomfortable, nervous, makes your armpit sweat a little bit. And we'll we'll just go back and forth a little bit a few times to get us us on this topic a little bit. So so I'll say a word or phrase, sentence, then then you go. So why don't don't you go first? Okay, I'll go first. My first word, phrase, or sentence would be greasy. (laughs) Moist. <laughs> Dog mom. Dog mom. I forgot to make one without onions. <laughs> Anything else? Any other ones? Sweaty. Sweaty. Oh, Point is, there's some words or sentences that make us uncomfortable. Tonight's podcast episode is definitely one of those. Anne-Marie Williams and her kid sister, Claire, um, I we put them in charge My of this kid episode. My sister, she is an adult. We gave them the latitude to choose the speech, choose the topic, and they did. And they're doing it on the speech given by Abby Johnson in 2017 regarding the relationship between artificial birth control and abortion. So heavy topic, but we're going to try to share a little bit from our experience um, regarding this, kind of have a broad spectrum uh, regarding us of some people have been married for quite a few years, one of us not married at all yet. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Hey, how is it that every time Anne-Marie and Claire go on, the episode is rated PG-13? I have noticed this as well, but... (laughs) Yeah, the last episode went really well, so I, I think it's it uh, I think it's gonna go. Yeah. So with that, let's cue the music. When you see the road from every direction, it will give you eyes, give you hope, it'll give you perspective. I've been back and forth, and yeah, I have. My crashes. Now I've seen the road. It goes every direction. So Anne Marie, this is Anne Claire. This this is your show. You're the host. You you guide us. Well, yeah. I think Matt. We just discussed this. I think Matt's gonna launch it off, and Claire and I will assist. Yeah, I'll. Yeah, I think I'll just to keep the speech guys continuity. Um, I might just be like. Who are these girls? <laughs> girls don't know how to podcast. <laughs> Speech ladies. No. But, uh, but yeah, no, we kind of talked about that. Do you guys ever tell people that you're podcasters? What's that? That was to the ladies. Do you guys ever tell people that you're podcasters? Now that you've yeah. done it twice? <laughs> well, we well, haven't even had our second one under our belt, so let's just do that first. I'm going to hold off on updating my LinkedIn for the time being, but it's, it's an option. It's on the table. 
But anyway, we have a really exciting episode. Um, I'm really, yeah, I'm really eager to talk about it and uh, get into things. It is a speech by Abby Johnson, the mother number two in our series on speeches by moms. Um, and this is a talk at a fundraiser for Natural Womanhood, which is, uh, well, I'll let Anne-Marie say a little bit more about that. Uh, but it's a speech Abby Johnson gave on contraception, abortion, their connection, and kind of what it means for society and motherhood um, as a whole. So we wanted to give Anne-Marie and Claire a little more latitude uh, to kind of pick the speech. So this is the first non-speech guy selected speech, which is fun, uh, to pick the speech and kind of give a little bit more uh, guidance and stuff um, in terms of like, yeah, what's important and to have, yeah, just a more holistic conversation on motherhood with two moms. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll just turn it over to Anne-Marie, if you could, just kind of tell us a little bit about why you picked the speech, and, well, you and Claire, I guess, whoever wants to jump in first, so. And the speech that we chose for tonight comes from a 2018 fundraiser for Natural Womanhood, and Abby Johnson spoke at it. This is something that she is able to speak about knowledgeably. So without touching on her views on white versus wheat bread, climate change, or any number of other issues, um, we're going to take this speech on the merits as somebody who worked at Planned Parenthood for nine years, um, that she is able to speak credibly on this particular topic and that there are other people whose testimony corroborates uh, the things that she has said here. So. She started out as an escort and worked her way all the way up to clinic manager and even received a manager of the year or employee of the year, I think. I believe it was employee of the year. I'll have to look that up. But yeah, she received yeah. some type of of the year distinction uh, before she headed out of the company. Hey, Ross, have you ever earned a work award like Abby Johnson? I have, it I have earned employee of the month twice. Whoa. For my department, not the whole. We're a big, big organization, so that would be a lot. <laughs> According to the billboards in my town, that's like five thousand four hundred people. If there's four departments near at your work, Ross, then that's one fourth times one sixth. That's that's your performance level compared to Abby Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. That's one twenty fourth. Your one twenty fourth is good as Abby Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Mercy. Employee of the year. I just looked it up. Employee of the year. Okay. That's what the distinction was. So, uh, at 1510 in the speech, she she makes the first of, of two points that Claire and I really wanted to draw out this evening. And so it wasn't really until I started looking into what had drawn me into Planned Parenthood and what I had been then selling to the masses, that's what got me to actually look into what contraception was doing to our society and to these young girls that we're pushing it on. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna briefly share with you Planned Parenthood's business plan. So their goal is their plan is to get into every private and public school system across the country. Okay? Check. They've done it here. FY. They're going to get into your private and public school system. And they're going to start teaching your children their sex ed curriculum starting in kindergarten. Okay, now they're not actually gonna teach them about sex in kindergarten, 
But the goal is they want to break down their natural modesty beginning very early. The primary goal is that they want to establish a relationship with your child when they're five, six, seven years old. Talking about this from the outside, it seems like, oh, this is so obvious. Like, how can you work there and know that? But Abby Johnson was the first one to acknowledge in her own talk that um, she lived that cycle, right? Like she went and had a few abortions and they continued to hand her the pill, which she knew hadn't worked for her, and she just took it. So I think that's just also interesting to note that like she lived that cycle, then she worked that cycle before like it really struck her as a problem. So I, I guess I hadn't thought about that, just thinking about, um, I don't know, I, I read the outline, maybe it was in there, but like Claire's point she just made, um, that she's, she lived the cycle. Like, obviously, everybody kind of, I think most people that would know of her name would think of her as someone that worked for Planned Parenthood. So kind of giving her the, like, she made it, uh, the comment at one point, you know, um, she said, I know because I used to teach that or something like that. But, so not only did she work that role, but she also lived, she lived it in the sense that, um, she was taking the birth control pill and became pregnant and had an abortion, I think, multiple times. Um, so I guess I didn't really give, I don't know, that, that thought didn't really strike me until now that Claire just made that the fact that she lived it, but it took her multiple times to start to question, to start to question it. Um, I don't know, I guess that just struck me a little bit there, Claire, when you said that. What do you guys, uh, I guess, what do you guys recall from your experience growing up in terms of like what were you taught about birth control contraception that sort of stuff like who was it that taught you um um well so i went to uh, a catholic grade school and public high school so obviously slightly different um uh tones there in either place uh i mean i definitely remember nfp being expressed like you know, this is this is what you are called to do as a married couple, um, and but I mean, it's, you're also in eighth or seventh grade, so it's like, I mean, even a good Catholic school. I mean, what what detail are you going to go into? Um, so I mean, even in retrospect, I mean, I'd I'd give I felt our teacher instructed on it in a pretty mature way, and. Um, Honestly, I don't remember. I didn't. She definitely never expressed whether she used it or not. Which, yeah, that would definitely require a high level of vulnerability for an eighth or seventh grade teacher. But at the same time, it would obviously also mean a whole lot to the students um, to hear that. Um, and my teacher, eighth and seventh grade. I mean, they were both definitely Catholic. Um, yeah, so that was my high school. I mean, I it was pretty much just you know your standard uh, abstinence. I remember it was definitely mentioned. Um, condoms were uh, were the thing back then. I guess they still are. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the most striking memory from sexual education class or health class was did you guys have to watch a video of a live birth not till mm -hmm. college 
Yeah, we watched it. I, I remember it was a, uh, a, Euro, a European woman's live birth that we watched. It was... It was heavy. Uh-huh. It was heavy. Did they uh, did they show you guys pictures of STDs like genital warts and herpes and all that? Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, was did. a big thing too. More like a scare tactic and shock and awe <laughs> versus like education. But um, but you do you get the sense though that those both were meant to scare the heck out of you? Both I, the pregnancy, I, the birth yeah, video, and yeah. the STI pictures. See, and and I would just like to point out, like I don't agree with that perspective actually. You don't I think, think if you're they, gonna, you don't think don't they think, meant to scare us? Oh no, I think they meant to scare you, but I don't agree with the perspective that says we should treat pregnancy and we should equate in a way pregnancy and STDs as both something that's terrifying. Like pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy sure. is a gift. Sure. And I don't I don't think that's a good thing that we do um, in sex ed to basically say we're gonna scare the bleep out of people. By showing them what a live birth is. Like, this is a bad thing, so stay away. Just like STIs, stay away from those two, or STDs. So, anyhow, what what uh, what would you say, Ross? What was your Well, well to briefly rebut that, I mean, I think in fairness, it's like fear, guilt, guilt wasn't really at play there, but it is also a negative emotion, like fear. I mean, it is definitely really useful. I mean, whether they should have also been using positive... Um, tools and elements to encourage a more uh more virtuous disciplined uh sexual path is is a different story but yeah i mean fear is uh what what did saint augustine say fear is the heart of love something like that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i i think there are a lot better ways though to communicate about pregnancy and why it would be worth postponing pregnancy or or not being sexually active in the first place when you're in high school than by saying that this is a very terrifying thing. Um, I don't think that helps young women to frame it in that way in particular. Yeah, I suppose I never thought of it that way Um, in terms of like fear. Yeah, just like the raw fear element. Um, I suppose like it does communicate a certain seriousness to like what's happening in a way that does like grab kids' attention, you know. Um, But yeah, I suppose like if I were to be in that or yeah i guess you would hope that they would like frame it and wrap it in a package that's more like this is this is serious this is um a real thing um and it is beautiful yeah it is a beautiful thing and came you know and it's a beautiful process but yeah absolutely definitely like a an interesting yeah kind of subconscious element of like i think what i mean i would guarantee almost every public school kid um in the country has seen a live birth video with the desire to scare you know or that at least being a element um i was just gonna say like have you yeah what was your experience matt like growing up um, yeah um yeah contraception i mean i would say not terribly dissimilar to mike's um i mean i do know that as much as like i think public schools kind of get bashed and as much as like um Planned Parenthood has, like, had a deep influence on that nowadays, at least, like, I don't know if they did back, you know, 20-whatever years. Um, it's been, I guess, 20 years now since I would have been exposed to this sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do know that they, like, emphasized, like, in several stages along the way that abstinence is the only 100% sure way to avoid pregnancy and to avoid um, STDs and, like, yeah, just to... 
um, yeah, that it is a serious thing. I think they communicated that. Um, they didn't communicate like the flip side of it in terms of like, well, what does it look like? You know, what's the pot? You know, there's a lot of no's and not a lot of like yeses. You know, like no to sex now means like yes to like a really good marriage and yes to like a life of less less pain and turmoil and you know whatever um, and like all this other stuff. But um, but there's also like the sentiment, and I don't know if this was necessarily from the teachers, but more or less from like my peers was like, I think how that message got interpreted was don't have sex until you're married, but when you do use a condom, it was kind of like this sort of, I don't know, uh, tacit understanding that like, which I suppose it's true to some degree, like, yeah, people are going to fail on that regard. Like I'm not naive <laughs> to expect that all teenagers will have an impeccable sexual morality. Um, but it was very much kind of a, a foregone conclusion, like, don't do it, wink, use a condom, I think was kind of how that got interpreted, at least. I don't know, I don't recall, like, that being explicitly said, necessarily, but... Um. Actually, I don't have any, like, strong memories of, like, oh, the day we talked about it in class or whatnot. Um, I think the overall would probably kind of be similar to what Matt said, like, this idea. Like, yeah, there is, <clears throat> like, abstinence is the only way you can ensure you won't you know, have these things happen to you, but, you know, kind of the wink, wink, I guess, maybe, um, not like a, it's okay to do it, but we know kids probably will, um, and I think that, I don't know, I just feel like the whole, the scare thing, I think, might be sort of just an indicator that, I don't know if it, I would say the kids aren't ready to start talking about it, but at least maybe not in that setting, if that makes sense, like, it's hard, like, you know, it's hard to take a group of 25, 16-year-olds and have someone they don't know maybe incredibly well talk about this type of topic in a super mature way. Um, so I don't know if the... Yeah, I, did, I don't know. I'm trying to think in my head. I'd have to think about it more. But if that's more of saying these kids just aren't ready to talk about this or we just kind of recognize it won't be a great conversation, so we're just going to try to scare them out of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. So Abby, well, Abby kind of talks about, so like education and like we kind of shared our experience, um, but she makes this, or, I mean, she makes, I think, a fairly bold claim that like this is a very, that Planned Parenthood's educational efforts um, are not like purely altruistic, right, in terms of like trying to save the world, you know, perhaps it, it I would say there's a way you can think of it that way, or, the, or they certainly might think of it that way and communicate it that way, but um, at the same time, like, there seems to be this, like, okay, like, so, yeah, you're giving people contraceptives, which we know aren't going to be terribly effective in this population, just because we know that they're, they're going to struggle with being consistent enough with it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty bold claim. Like, were you guys, had you guys thought about that before? Um, yeah, had you guys thought about that before? encountering the speech because I, I mean I know Anne-Marie and Claire probably have just because um, yeah I mean Anne-Marie's a prolific writer dare I say um, and uh, yeah I know Claire, Claire and Anne-Marie have had conversations that I've been privy to but um, but yeah I guess what were you guys yeah had you guys thought about that dynamic of Planned Parenthood and how they uh, how they roll so I want to take a step back because I feel like it needs to be talked about addressed a little bit. <clears throat> Obviously, you know, it is 
bona fide fact, Abby Johnson worked for Planned Parenthood for nine years or seven years or whatever it was. Certainly a substantial period of time. But segueing into the... And then she left Planned Parenthood. Obviously, certainly the case. Um, but segueing into the speech, she's making some claims of Planned Parenthood as the boogeyman. Whether or not you agree they're the boogeyman or not is, um, you know, a separate sort of discussion in a sense. So why why should we listen to Abby Johnson's pretty in, she, in fairness Abby Johnson does recognize in the speech this conspiratorial sounding like claims of the nature of Planned Parenthood's um, quote unquote educational model business model regarding grade school education um, so yeah, why why should we believe Abby Johnson? How do we how do we know that she's not just an aggrieved uh, uh, departed employee, which is what Planned Parenthood claims that she is? Uh, I think the most basic defense of what she says probably is that she's not the only one. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Monica Klein. I think it's C L I N E. Anyhow, I've written a couple articles about her on live action, but she's also a former educator for Planned Parenthood previously and now she has an organization a nonprofit that she started teaching parents that they need to be the first and primary educators of their children on sexual education matters so because Planned Parenthood's whole model is to groom your children to break down their natural inhibitions so that they get to a point where anything goes um, disregarding literature that says that especially for teenage girls early onset of sexual activity correlates with all sorts of negative outcomes academically psychologically and down the road in life. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can, uh, you can like Abby Johnston not as a person, but she's not the only person who is saying these things. Maybe piggybacking off of that, even just like with a slightly different thought um, from that, I was just gonna just like take the thought of, okay, how are they surviving as like a business? Where are they making the most money? Um, and we do know it is through abortions. And so if you're going to make sure you have abortions to keep your doors open, you have to, you can't undermine your own business. You know what I mean? Like, why would they do that? Um, so yeah, maybe like <laughs> contraception, um, specifically like the birth control pill, isn't safe for women or there are better options or we should be doing more research for other options but to actively go out of their way to promote that themselves would be undermining their own business. So that's why I'm also a little bit like, to argue those two can't go together um, seems, what's the word I'm looking for? It just doesn't seem like it's unreasonable to argue that. What? There we go, thank you. <laughs> there we go. One more time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I guess just to put a final fine point on what I'm trying to say, there's, I think whenever the discussion gets into um, intent of individuals, especially in today's today's climate, like, I mean, I, I just like looking at end results um the the fact the facts on the ground essentially versus 
saying this is what this person intends or this group intends, right? I mean, because when it becomes intent, right? Like intent, especially when you apply it to a large group, becomes so muddy because there is no doubt, and Abby Johnson, I think, speaks to this, like there's no doubt that there's people who work at Planned Parenthood who are probably... Hopefully, I'm not going to hell for saying this, who are probably better people than me, right? There's There has to be more than zero, right? Certainly people who are and trying to help. I know Mike Absolutely. very well, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, I think that... No, I mean, obviously, speaking into intent some, you know, certain times is certainly useful, but uh, I think, you know, it can just become more subjective than is constructive, so... Anyway, I'm I'm not trying to say cut the conversation off because you can't prove, but I think it is something worthwhile to think about that that intent dimension. Yeah, and I don't disagree with you about intent at all. I think that's exactly right that we shouldn't be judging what we think other people's intent is. I'm just saying in this case, I think the outcomes speak pretty clearly to what the end result is, and uh, presumably that's on purpose. I guess. I guess that's what I would say. I think the outcomes are pretty clear what comes from educating kids starting in kindergarten on sex ed. Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, like, kind of just to jump off it a little bit. Just with children and, like, age-appropriate things and that type of thing. So now that I have, you know, so I have three kids right now. So, I mean, just now that I'm starting to think about, yeah, they're going to school and what they're being taught and stuff, hearing some things is like, man, that's just... Um, I, I just, I struggle to find parents that would think that's appropriate. Um, it's not like a, oh, I think that's wrong. It's like, I actually, I don't, I would have a hard time finding parents that I know that would agree with that, um, which is kind of concerning. Um, but it's something else you kind of mentioned that I thought was interesting, like outcomes. I, I guess I had never really given a, some of the, I mean, the, I mean, she mentioned the outcome, I think you know, 54% of people that have abortions were taking con oral, con uh, I don't remember what she said, it was the pill or just contraception in general. Just artificial but, contraception yeah. in general. Artificial contraception in general. But like, I guess that's, and then we looked at like a, kind of trying to look into researching the episode, like a lot of the data um, on that, that's just not something like the big picture. I guess I'd always thought about those type of things about, you know, contraception or natural family planning like I'd always kind of thought about that more individually and like what would you know what am I going to do um in my life yet seeing some of those numbers and like you, you kind of said the outcomes don't lie it was just kind of surprising to me and I or not surprising but I feel like it would be surprising to a lot of people who accept the general narrative that you know, if we just continue to push contraception, abortion rates will go down. So, because you kind of hear that a lot, I feel like with politicians, even like, oh, absolutely. Um, even outside of the, is, like, not getting into the abortion, is it right or wrong debate, but just you'll hear that from a lot of politicians, like, okay, well, like, take that out of the equation. Let's just talk about how can we get them less. Sure. And that's usually, I feel like, the number one thing that I've heard, at least. So then when you look at the data, it's like, man, that just doesn't really back that up. And I just found that kind of intriguing. So, um, yeah, I guess I, did. I, I thought that was a very interesting kind of way of thinking about it. Like, does it actually work or not? Just doesn't ever get talked about. Yeah, and that's that's something that I, I just found as a fascinating pattern with all the, and I, I'm, the remarkable volume, not even just like a few studies, but like all of these different studies looking at things from different angles um, in terms of like 
unintended pregnancies and abortions and like their relationship with like contraception use um, or coverage in the state and availability and things. Um, and yeah, it did seem to be like it was very striking that like yeah, contraception really doesn't put a dent um, in abortion numbers. Um, so the studies that Matt is uh, referring to there. Um, so I've got one of them pulled up, Mike. So yeah, so um, so let's see. This is from uh, I believe Secular Pro Life. Um, States with zero contraception coverage requirements had the lowest abortion rates at 9.68 abortions per thousand women, age 15 to 44. States with two, three, and four contraception, so that the higher contraception coverage uh, or comprehend, yeah, coverage requirements had rates of 14.58, 15.14, and 14.00, respectively. Uh, the results could imply that contraception access has actually increased abortion rates, and many pro-lifers may try to make that claim. Um, let's see. The rest of it's more like analysis, not as much data. But either way, um, yeah, I mean, I think there is there is validity to the kind of perceived safety net of contraception leading to, um, yeah, more risky behavior. You know, kind of like, uh, yeah, just like if you have a seatbelt, great, now you can drive 100 miles an hour you know, down the interstate mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. something like, sure. the, you know, other sure. other kind of uh, phenomena that have been observed, you know, that things that would appear to make you safe didn't actually or, or maybe only do to a minor degree and um, just because, of, you know, the perceived risk is less, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is a very plausible thing and that, like, I've never heard a news outlet cover it. Uh, just so just prov- provide another layer of clarity to that point. This <clears throat> this study wasn't done by secular pro life. This was, was cited a in the, yeah. sort of meta analysis of sure. data by uh, young uh, Miss Monica Snyder, I think, um, based upon data from the Guttmacher Institute, which is actually a pro-choice um, reproductive rights type of research body and uh, the Pew Research Group, which uh, I think identifies as, uh, as nonpartisan. Guttmacher Institute, for those who don't know, used to be Planned Parenthood's formal research arm. So they're now technically on their own, but they were previously underneath uh, Planned Parenthood, named after Alan Guttmacher, who was uh, a Planned Parenthood employee. So I think, I mean, I don't know. Sorry, I don't want to take the control because girls, you're, this is your show tonight, Speech Ladies. <laughs> but um, something that I think, and not to, I mean, I'm not trying to present this as, as like a devil's advocate, more so as just like a different way of thinking about it. Um, so I, I, like I said, I was kind of surprised, just to be totally honest, uh, looking at some of the data, like, yeah, like it seems like broad, you know, pushing of contraception doesn't necessarily push towards reduced abortion rates if that's at least you know the the mantra that we hear a lot from politicians um but i don't know if that necessarily addresses kind of an individual's personal like uh how someone's individually going to come to a decision about how they're Mm going to affect you know plan a family if you will so um like i know we talked about nfp a little bit ago and i'm sure a lot of people don't really know what nfp is but um just kind of the idea actually the I think Mike actually brought it up in the outline kind of the gun analogy like yeah of course like if you have increased numbers of firearms there will be increased accidents with guns but 
like me as a personal person, or me as I'm a personal person, <laughs> me as an individual, um, I feel like, you know, I have a safe in my, in my basement and everything it's locked in the coat. Like they're just, it's the chances. I mean, the kids physically wouldn't be strong enough to open the safe and it's locked and there's no way they could find the code. So like, I feel like it's not necessarily risk for me individually, if that makes sense. So even though I would accept data that says, yep, on a huge scale that make makes sense to me as an individual, it doesn't necessarily make much sure. sense. So I feel like even though I, I mean, the data seems pretty clear, like if you just push contraception, that's not going to bring abortion rates down, which I mean, and Abby Johnson's talk, like, I mean, just so people know, like the audience, you're assuming to uh, who she's speaking to is pro-life. So she doesn't address like the is abortion right or wrong discussion. Um, that's just not what her talk is about. She's, you know, more linking the if if you assume that abortion is wrong, this is things you need to consider. But I think that that's something else that has to be at least discussed or talked about is, you know, like uh, the they, the fact that they prescribe the pill, the the ones that are most likely to fail because, you know, people aren't going to take them correctly or consistently. That doesn't necessarily stop an individual from saying like, but I will. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think that those are, in a way, just like two separate questions. Sure. So are you asking them like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you trying to ask the question then of like, so if not the pill, then what the heck are you suggesting? <laughs> Is that kind of what you're getting at? or Sort okay. of. And um, yeah, I'd, uh, it's kind of funny. Talk about things we're uncomfortable with. I don't, in this topic, I can't really correct. I feel, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't feel comfortable correcting the woman's voice here. But um, no, that's like, yeah, just so what is the other option or what is the best option, you know, for an individual woman, say, you know, she says, I'm very responsible. I would take it correctly, you know, you know, not convince me that I'm wrong, but what option then would she have that would be better than the Sure. Or whatever means of artificial birth control she were talking about. Yeah. I think just considering we don't talk about the side effects of uh, contraception extensively and just opening up that conversation um, with whomever, let's say this really responsible gal, um, and she's like, okay, fine, the side effects. The end result, though, that I'd hope um, to get this gal to would be that there are ways you can understand your body so that you don't actually have to take oral contraception. You can track your own fertility on your own, and it is possible to understand it. You are capable, um, and it's empowering, and you don't have side effects from it. <laughs> it's free um, and things like that. So I think just ultimately hoping the end goal, right, if you were to say the crazy, crazy idea of saying, like, you don't need contraception, actually, um, if you're talking to someone who's like, no, I take it responsibly, would be, you know, there's actually education out there to uh, inform you what your body's doing so you can respect its natural cycles um, and not get pregnant if you don't want to, you know? Um, Amory, do you have anything more? I'm sure you have lots to add to that, but that would have just been my gut reaction response. Well, maybe, maybe before we go there, Amory, because I think the next, the second part of the speech you guys wanted to highlight might be a good thing to just throw in there right now, because I think this is a good pivot and we can kind of touch all the topics kind of once we get that second part. So why don't you, Amory, if you don't mind, kind of read like what you find to be the most important parts of that second clip from the speech.
And for so long, women have been told by doctors that the only way to cure their fertility is to break it. When you look at studies and you see that where there are higher rates of contraception, there's higher rates of abortion. Because if a woman is, if she's so desperate not to have a baby, that she's willing to give herself cancer, risk of stroke, risk of DVT, risk of osteoporosis, risk of heart attack, if she's that desperate not to have a baby, that she's willing to cause that sort of harm to her body, then if she does get pregnant, I think the next logical step would be abortion. There's an absolutely beautiful way of looking at women's bodies that is fundamentally different from the whole model of sexual education in our country. And that's why I was trying to draw at that point earlier that I don't like the idea of using scare tactics as if we were equating pregnancy with some other type of STD, right? Because um, there's a woman named Leah Jacobson. She's a lactation consultant, a mom of seven, and she founded what's called the Guiding Star Project. And it's essentially an alternate model of women's health care that views the woman's body as healthy and normal. So it um, rejects a male normative world, essentially saying that women are only equal to men if their bodies are the same as men, um, and prizes what she calls the feminine superpowers, which is which are women's abilities to ovulate, gestate, right, to grow a baby to be pregnant, and to lactate. And so a world that views women as having superpowers like these, right, um, the ability to conceive new life, the ability to carry it, and then to nurture it. Um, that's a fundamentally different way of looking at women's bodies. And I think that it's one that approaches a woman's body with reverence, awe, and respect. And I think that if we start there from that viewpoint with young girls, then we do a lot to address the major self-esteem issues that we tend to see in girls arising mm -hmm. specifically in puberty um, and going on through the rest of their lives. But I think that it makes sense that women would not trust their bodies when they are told by our society that they can't trust their bodies. Because to quote Leah again, we have to alter, suppress, or destroy their fertility in order for them to be happy and successful people. Claire and I, as we were talking about what videos we would do, she sent me one. It was a 20 minute testimony essentially of this, this girl who got off the pill after, gosh, what was it, 11 years or 14 years of some crazy amount of years, right? And she was talking about um, all the problems she'd had, including needing to have her gallbladder removed as a consequence of birth, the birth control that she was on. But something she said was so striking to me. She said she was terrified as a teenager of getting pregnant, which concerns me for multiple reasons. One, she clearly didn't know that a woman can't get pregnant every day of the month. <laughs> Women's fertility isn't like men's fertility, right? I shouldn't say she clearly didn't know that, but it didn't sound like she knew that. Um, and there was also definitely this this sense that like pregnancy was kind of like I said earlier, like like another STD, like something terrible that you would catch as opposed to something beautiful. Um, now, is it something that makes sense for a teenager? That's not this. That's not to say that that that's something that should be going on for teens, but it's very different for a woman to be able to say, I have these superpowers in my body that are so serious, so profound, and so sacred that I can grow another human life versus I need to avoid getting sick with this thing that could, you know, infect me forever. Um, so that's, that's, I think, I think just looking at, at, you know, like, 
talking to a woman who would say like, well, why would I get off the birth control? Because I'm very responsible and I will take it accurately. Well, I would say our whole approach to fertility, the approach that's the preset of contraception, like the assumed position is one that I fundamentally disagree with that I think really is in many ways anti-woman because it takes women's natural bodies and is that they're not good enough. Um, but then also on the flip side of that, I would say <laughs> there's so much good that you can learn from your body when you're naturally cycling. I don't think most women know what ovulation does for their bodies. That ovulation is absolutely necessary for your breast health. It's necessary for your brain health, your heart health, your immune system. Ovulation impacts multiple body systems. And the whole point of contraception is to shut ovulation down. So I would say that if you are looking to prevent pregnancy, there are absolutely ways that you can do that. Like Claire said, working with the rhythms of your body that do not deprive you of the benefits, the health benefits in particular of ovulation. So I've been trying to think in the most succinct, <clears throat> succinct way to sort of respond. Well, yeah, respond to that. And, you know, basically how Claire got us rolling in response to Ross's question of if not the pill now or then what right and it, it was geared more towards you know not so much towards married people but yeah those people who young 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 women out out in the lost adolescent years like so many of us and it's like <clears throat> you know Anne-Marie and Claire, you know, you're you're explaining a a theology and, and vision of the body, the woman's body, which yeah, it's like really inspiring. You know, if I had a daughter and the Dust Girls were teaching a uh, a class at the local community college on this topic, I'd be like, yeah, you you go get your hiney down to the Dust Girls class and learn some things. <laughs> But in at the same time, it's like in order to have a certain amount of like rah 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 to that. Not not to say like it's it's propaganda so much, but but one has to also have underlying that, and I'll, I'm willing to be challenged on this. But a certain like appreciation of, uh, I guess you would say like phenomenology or a metaphysical layer of reality, which nah, which mer. hold on hold on hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> which which historically was sort of developed and advanced through religion. Um, and just having a certain appreciation that the stories and the things that we perceive and can't necessarily measure like have value and have meaning like like that's that's sort of like a foundation of groundwork for being able to say yeah being being a woman is not something that is reducible um okay here's oh man there's a metaphor that I came up with while while I was talking <laughs> Um. Here, okay. I don't know if there's a perfect metaphor, but maybe there's something there. So let let's take as a metaphor that rather than your goal in this case being this very complex, um, healthy, strong woman, 
the objective is to become a, uh, as things often are in this podcast, a stud runner, right? And what is what is more inspiring? What's gonna really rile up your athletes if you're a coach? Developing the story like, okay, Iliopolis cross country team. This is our first year having a cross country team. No one thinks that we're gonna make it even to sectionals, let alone state. We've only got five guys, one of them has an ingrown toenail. One of them is only five and a half feet tall. No one believes in us, right? Like that that kind of like story, that's like that can be like really powerful, right? Or is the story that's gonna move your athlete something reducible like, hey, Jimmy with the ingrown toenail. Look, let's face it, only one percent of people with ingrown toenails have ever made it to the state cross country meet. So, you know, just we want you to hit this mark right here. Not this mark, this mark down here, right? So the point like I'm trying to make in, in that metaphor is that you need to be a certain kind of person in order to believe in that first story. Um, I'll stop there. Otherwise, I'm going to ramble. But but you guys sort of <laughs> no, like I, see, I totally, what, yeah. see what I'm getting at. See what you're saying yeah. for sure. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds sort of like what you're saying is, well, the average girl or woman's not necessarily going to be able to either maybe connect to that, or maybe it won't somehow be possible for her if she hasn't grown up in a religious background, let's say. Is that kind of what you're driving at? Well, use the term religious loosely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. She has to be coming from a certain place. Well, uh, I mean, I could, I could see that maybe ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. But I mean, you look at the proliferation of femtech, which is like, right, technology related to essentially women's health and fertility. I mean, it's exploded. Like, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, and its value is only going to grow. Okay. So you've got the Clue app. You've got um, Clue birth control, which is now an FDA-approved contraception or contraceptive. So is Natural Cycles app. I mean, these things are, are gaining significant popularity, and they have no connection to religion whatsoever, even in the loosest terms, right? This is purely secular business. But then but then let's, let's also talk about, like, okay, well, maybe that's a whole bunch of, like, very educated women using the Natural Cycles app, and, and maybe those still aren't representative, right? Like, maybe those still aren't representative of the average woman. So I'm just going to read to you a couple of snippets. I'm not going to quote them, but I'm going to paraphrase them from... Uh, an article on Natural Womanhood's website from 2020. In the 1980s, Leslie Carroll both had taught basic fertility awareness training to teen girls, 13 to 17 year olds, at eight different restorative care homes for at-risk girls. Typical girl in the program had been a victim of sexual assault, ran away from home, used drugs and alcohol, and ended up in jail. In working with these girls, Mrs. Botha made an amazing discovery. Teens who are taught fertility awareness and how to chart their cycles can regain control of their life. Here's what she found. For 90% of the girls in the program who had ended up in jail, it happened during the premenstrual phase of her cycle. That monthly darkness that Ms. Botha calls falling down the rabbit hole. Symptoms manifested as increased anger, disruptive and self-destructive behavior, suicidal ideation, and drug and alcohol cravings. So after she worked with the girls and taught them to chart their cycles, she found that they were able to purposefully choose different behaviors. They became aware of that monthly rabbit hole, as she called that premenstrual phase, and they were able to choose something different. No, and I was going to just add a little something, too. I was reading an article about how 
I think Mother Teresa. So this was like, what? Mother Teresa hired someone to teach her sisters natural family planning so they could teach um, their impoverished communities they were serving how to do, um, I think it was a symptothermal method of charting, uh, to, tr- to figure out how to plan their family. Um, she served like 12,000 couples. Like, their, their religious community did this. Um, the reason I bring that up is I think because sometimes there's also the argument, and Amory obviously mentioned this by talking about uh, these women ending up in jail, but like the idea that your socioeconomic status also means you probably wouldn't be able to figure this out. It's like, no, they taught impoverished families in India how to do this. Um, and they still do. Yeah, and they're still doing it. Yeah, they still do that. Yeah. Yep. So, no, I, I, and I also think that it's um, some type of ist, not sexist, classist, whatever it is when you're against <laughs> people because of their socioeconomic status. I think it's not okay to say that, well, because they're poor, either they don't deserve to have that kind of education or somehow they're not capable. I don't think that people are any less capable one than the other just because they have less money or material resources than other people do. I don't think they're any less deserving of our education and our best efforts to help them. Because on the flip side, (laughs) they're going to have the least money to deal with all the side effects of contraception, especially if they are in a third world country where they're not going to have follow-up care for contraceptives that get placed in them. Okay, so, I mean, yeah, that's that's obviously compelling on surface level. Mother Teresa and her group are teaching impoverished uh, young women about uh, NFP and they're, uh, they're having... Wait, you said eight... eight well, you said 12,000 couples, too. That's <laughs> a lot more than that now. It's like, okay, if, if this is actually so successful, I mean... That, that sounds like a winning model. Then why why is it not being implemented? I mean, maybe I'll answer my own question and go back to the... But I, I'm really incredulous as to it being that simple of... And I mean, yeah, there's, there's certainly like some truth to that, but I'm incredulous as to that being all, all that answer is because... Planned Parenthood doesn't make money off of it. I might have an answer to that question, maybe. <clears throat> and like, I guess my question at this point a while ago, kind of like, okay, what else is there? And you know, we've said NFP quite a few times. So, and Anne Marie would probably be better would definitely be better at explaining this than me. But you know, NFP, natural family planning, there are there. It's not some just like random thing that you just guess at. There's a lot of new, like good scientific research to support it. That it is effective. It does work. You can do it, um, whether or not whether or not that's put out there often or not. But for me, um, like, so I'm you know married guy. Like, when we think about what we're gonna do to quote unquote plan our family. Um, I remember, so I'll tell a quick story, like, and I don't remember exactly when I had this thought, but at some point, you know, thinking about marriage and I don't remember if I was engaged thinking about it, I don't remember where we were, but, um, it kind of hit me like, yeah, there are side effects to contraception and yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would say it's very low side effects and all that stuff. But I mean, at the same time they are there, right? So Anytime you have any sort of risk, I feel like you have to weigh the reward and the alternatives. 
And so for me, it was kind of like, and again, I mean, I'm oversimplifying all of this, but I was, I kind of had a thought of, I could have my wife, I could have, like I control her, but you know, we could decide as a couple that Julie, my wife would take a pill that even if it's a low chance, like does have side effects, possible side effects, I guess, or, you know, abstain from sexual activity for a certain period of time. And I just kind of remember having the thought of like, how would I come to the first response? Like what, would that be the best part of me or not the best part of me that came to the conclusion that, you know, I'm willing to risk, even if it's a low chance, I get that, but like I'm willing to risk a side effect so that I can have sex more. I, I don't know, and I know that's a super generalized simplification of it, but that really no, struck No, but it was a real thought that you had. Yeah, absolutely. I, like That wasn't a legitimate thought that I had. hypothetically identify with. Yeah, so I, I just, I remember thinking like, is, is, I don't know, like is that the best part of me that's coming to this conclusion? And I'm sure other people would say, yeah, there's other reasons for it, and I'm not trying to say that that's a perfect analogy, but um, that kind of thought came to my head. It seems like there is a method that works that has zero side effects. Um, so I just, I remember at least thinking about like, it seems like it should be a relatively simple solution. Um, but to kind of answer Mike's question, and not that I disagree completely with, I think Claire's response that, you know, there's no money in it, but you know, I mean, it's hard to do, though, at the same time. So I think that's kind of part of the answer is it's harder to do that. So I feel like we should at least address that a little bit as far as to tie all that together. Yes, I, like you can have, you know, a good, you know, a kind of a healthy way to look at women's bodies. Anne-Marie, what she said about, you know, being a superhero, I thought that was actually a pretty cool way to describe how women's bodies naturally work. Um, it's interesting to me that, or, you know, ourself or women's freedom is we're going to change them. That seems pretty contradictory, but um, or dissonant. But I think something to kind of talk about to Mike's question is like, why is this not more prevalent if it's a healthy, good alternative that gives you the best version, like that best supports women and puts them up? Is it is it can be very difficult to do? So in some ways, it's it's not you know there's an easy way out at least is what we're told. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense or ties together well, but I tried to, yeah, kind of bring a couple thoughts together there. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think even on a larger scale beyond just like the individual decision making on like, oh, this is easier to do the pill, let's just do that. Um, I think that both, the fact that both abortion and contraception are closely tied together um, which I don't think anyone really deny necessarily. I know Abby Johnson kind of tied them together in a very particular way, but even even outside of that, um, like I think they are very closely tied together, right? They're both an effort to um, allow for sexual activity with like less long-term repercussions, right? Um, which I think brings us back to like the sexual revolution like where kind of both of these issues became more of an issue <laughs> in the first place, you know? Um, so I think there are just big, like cultural movements that have stemmed from the sexual revolution that lead to the use of birth control too, beyond it just being like harder on an individual level. Like it's also just, there are big 
movers and shakers who like, yeah, who don't want to let the sexual revolution go and don't want to let go some of the fruits from that. Um, and, but at the same time, I think it's like, I don't know, that was like in the sixties, right? That's like, that's 50 years ago plus, you know, whatever. Um, all right. Like, I think it's high time. Like we just kind of look at the fruits of it. Like what has happened after the sexual revolution? Um, and like what has like been the repercussions has like, um, our family's healthier now, our relationships better now, um, are people happier? Um, are women happier? You know, are women being taken better care of health-wise? Um, are there fewer women living in poverty? Are there fewer children born into out-of-wedlock homes? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I think that there's a lot of those outcome measures that you would, you, maybe the people who were on board with the sexual revolution in the first place were hoping would pan out. Um, or maybe there was other stuff behind it, like who knows, whatever the case may be, like, yeah, I think it is high time we kind of look at that. Um, and like, and I think this kind of cuts into the intent piece too, because like, I don't think people, I would imagine most people in Planned Parenthood aren't nefariously like, you know, laughing and celebrating the number of abortions they have. So they certainly don't, may not intend that link by that, but they're certainly intending it insofar as like, yeah, just by the nature of the world and how it works in terms of sex, babies, merit, men, women, relationships, how all of those things are connected. Like when you break those connections, like it just doesn't work the same way, you know, and it's not going to work well. And yeah, like a contraception will lead to more abortion, you know, um, or at least continued abortion. Um, and, uh, yeah, just cause like you're, you're messing with things in a way that they're never intended to be messed with. Um, in the words of Malcolm from Jurassic Park, life finds a way, <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think there's a lot like absolutely. And like, I really like that analogy you used Ross about like your decision-making, um, and that plays itself out on the individual level, but there's also, I think, bigger picture things that, um, yeah, it's like, why isn't it talked about much? It's like, well, yeah, there's a lot of, if you talk about contraception, you have to talk about abortion. If you talk about abortion, you have to talk about marriage. If you talk about marriage, you have to talk about men and women and how they relate to one another. And like, what is humanity? And, you know, yeah, those are a lot of big questions that like people that aren't expediently to answer politically, you know, um, so it gets, it gets hairy pretty quick. Matt, can you share with us the quote that you had from the outline that Mike really pointed out? Like, yeah, let's make sure that we we throw this out there. Well, yeah, and I guess, yeah, maybe a, a shorter version of all the mumbo jumbo I just said <laughs> <laughs> would be like, so what our modern culture has rejected is the idea that there is a coherent description of men and women. Like, that's a possible thing. Um, in the wake of that rejection, there's this new kind of capitalist materialist anthropology that's emerging uh, where men and men and women are now seen as genderless widgets uh, that exist to generate enough wealth to live as pleasantly as they can until they die. I guess any sort of like gendered um, view of humanity, like a gendered ideology or not ideology, a gendered anthropology. Um, yeah, like at least in America, like we're capitalists and we're materialists. <laughs> So, like, 
what, what's going to happen. Like, well, we're going to want to make money. And we're going to want to have sex and enjoy carnal pleasures, you know, and free love, man. And, and like, yeah, it's it's going to, that's, that's kind of what's happened. And, yeah, I don't know if there's been a lot of great fruit from that. And maybe on the other side of things, um, beyond just, like, arguing against some of the fruit from the sexual revolution, just kind of like arguing for something in its place. Um, give me a second here. Where it's did right it go? up here. Oh, sorry. Claire pointed this out, and I was like, oh. Um, Why did you whisper it? What? <laughs> Why did you whisper well, it? Oh, he was mid-sentence. Oh, yeah. Good idea, Claire. Oh, that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I don't have an answer to that question. But, <laughs> but it, so one of... Um, one of the articles, the live action articles that were posted, um, had a note that while 40 to 50% of couples who contracept reportedly divorce, the divorce rate among couples who use fertility awareness methods is base is only three to 5%. Carney believes this is due, or the, yeah, this is from the article. Uh, Carney believes this is due to a fundamental difference in mindset among those using NFP, one that values the woman as a whole person and doesn't pathologize her fertility and which views women, or I'm sorry, which views children as a blessing and a joy rather than a burden. Yeah, I've heard that statistic before. I mean, I remember hearing it in college. But there's there's a thousand and fifty other things that someone who's practicing NFP are doing that are good for their marriage. I mean, I... I don't think it, it's difficult to attribute such massive weight that uh, using NFP is going to bind your marriage together. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't, but I mean, it, I just feel like that's applying more weight than one can through that uh, just uh, one particular statistic but i think on to be fair though i mean you can say that but you can also say that using contraception goes along with lots of other attitudes and behaviors and practices as well right like what do we ever do that's completely in isolation one thing from everything else yeah 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 i was gonna say like on a hypothetical my first thought was yeah but like most people that in a, use NFP are probably Catholic, and and the Catholic Church is right doesn't approve of divorce. So like there might, I mean, I could see someone making the claim that there's like other reasons they are choosing not to, whether or not they're in a happy marriage or not. But on a more like personal level, I think that again, just to kind of think about my own life a little bit, something I don't think I would have known going into marriage. Maybe not. I would have said I known, but I would have said that I knew this, but I did not. <laughs> Um, was just like it does have other positive effects that I wouldn't have foreseen. So, like my um, not my I mean example, but like I actually kind of like. No, I don't kind of like. I feel like it helps our marriage that I understand a little bit more about just my wife's body, what she's going through, how it's supposed to work, how it works naturally, and how we can. I mean, yeah, just cooperate with that. Um, in a sense, and I actually feel like that does help me to know her better as a person, which I do feel like draws us closer together. So um, I would believe that people who it's like, yeah, it's hard sometimes and it's a sacrifice, but it there are it does seem like there are parts of it that actually draw us closer together, where if we weren't forced to do that, they just wouldn't exist. Something else I really like about 
natural family planning. And I, I do want to make one clarification. In religious circles, it's more well known as natural family planning. In the secular sphere, it's a lot more common to describe fertility awareness methods. But that's actually not one method. It is an umbrella term. So that refers to multiple different ways of using different biomarkers in the woman's um, cyclical patterns of fertility and infertility to determine um, whether she's fertile or infertile at any given time. And the effectiveness does vary depending on the method, right? There are evidence-based methods um, that with perfect use have uh, equivalent pregnancy prevention effectiveness to, you know, any form of birth control on the market, really, um, especially you know, especially the pill. And even with typical use, they're still pretty consistent with uh, the pill, for instance. Um, but so just want to put that out there that we're not just referring to like one thing, we're referring to a whole umbrella term of methods. But one thing I think is really beautiful that comes from using fertility awareness is this sense of shared responsibility between the man and the woman for their fertility as a couple. And we talked about that in the outline. We kind of got into that whole conversation of like, well, how come men don't have to take birth control? Like, why aren't male contraceptives a thing? And I wrote an article about this uh, a couple months ago that I linked to. And <laughs> there are many reasons. Biology, the male biology versus the woman's biology is one one of them. And the woman, you're shutting down once a cycle event. And men, you have to shut down an event that happens every single day, which is the production of millions more sperm. Um, but also there is a double standard between what side effects are considered acceptable in men versus in women. And the beauty of fertility awareness is that you sidestep that whole conversation of like, okay, the woman has to be on the pill or the woman has to have an IUD in or she has to have Depo-Provera or fill in the blank. Fertility awareness says this is our fertility and we take responsibility for it. And so, no, it's not, you know, my husband pressuring me about anything because he understands that this is our responsibility and we together as a team take into account what our pregnancy intentions are or not. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think there is a lot of truth. There. I think to riff on, I guess, the other side of the coin to that, something I was thinking about, it's like, man, how has how someone not said out loud, especially given our climate, that, that artificial birth control is the most overlooked blight of sexism in the past 60 years. <laughs> um, Some people are saying yeah, that. I mean, it, oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, that's just wild. Yeah, I mean, I think along the same note, sort of like a little bit of a thought, thought experiment and the riff on something that Matt had said in another episode. Um, you know, okay, so let, let's just say for hypotheticals, you know, that the most real way to sleep with your spouse is to practice NFP because it requires being conscientious of their fertility and it requires uh, discipline and simply restraint on the male's part, I mean the woman's part too, but um, yeah. Okay, so, right, and so for that reason, you're, because you're involving a greater volume of the other person, right, their, their mental, their physical, their spiritual, right, all these different things going on, that it makes it a more real and meaningful experience, right? So on the other end of that, where let's say that both people 
are just imagining someone else when they're sleeping with this other person, right? Like that, I think is easier for people to see. Is like, oh yeah, that's terrible. Now, obviously, I'm sure a lot of people do that, but I think you'd have a lot more people saying a lot more just average everyday Joes uh, or Janes saying something like, oh yeah, no, that's terrible. That's way too transactional, or that is transactional, right? But and I think you know, it's not to simply say, oh, well, obviously, then whatever method of nfp you're using like that's the right way but i think it's that that sort of thought experiment should at least open the door to recognizing that there are ways of engaging in sex that open you up more profoundly more deeply to the entire person rather than just one tiny part of them right and okay to just keep running with that metaphor too it's like other like transactional affairs of society no pun intended but like ordering food at a restaurant right there's something that we generally consider like off or wrong if you treat your waiter or waitress like a piece of garbage like no please no thank you no eye contact right to recognize that both of you are in the midst of this very complex and elegant and confusing and inspiring journey that one calls life versus just you know hey give me the burger with no onions right we recognize that dichotomy in that and as gk chesterson says there's a catholic way to climb a tree you know so it's uh yeah so what is the catholic way to climb a tree ross up <laughs> I believe you go up the tree. <laughs> don't don't scrape too much bark off it, or else you reduce its carbon sequestration. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so maybe uh, I don't know if this will be a final question. Maybe this is a little too broad for a final question. But um, <clears throat> I guess what what does Abby Johnson's speech say about motherhood in general? Like, what should we what should we learn about motherhood? This is the speeches about uh, or I'm sorry, speeches by moms series. Um, yeah, like what should we call to mind about our mothers? How should we treat motherhood um, as we encounter it? You know, in day to day life, either you know our wives or our moms or neighbors who are moms. Um. There's no easy way out. And that's in a good way. So like we talked about in our last um, episode, like motherhood is supposed to be hard. Motherhood is hard. That was, I believe, the title of the episode or the quote in it. But like that's not in a negative way. It's in like a life-changing way. And then I think that's what we talked about last episode a lot. And I think it's kind of the same thing in this episode, but more of a, as opposed to motherhood, it's the, the fertility and reproduction side of it, right? Like, there isn't just an easy way out of it, but that's not necessarily, that's not bad. It, it's, a, it's a very, like Anne Marie has said multiple times, like it's a very good thing. It's a very beautiful thing. And you can't just, you shouldn't just, and you can't just find an easy way out of it. It just doesn't exist. Um, so I feel like that's kind of what I took. My biggest thought was from this is, is that this, there isn't some way, magic way to just make it disappear, but that's okay. Like there shouldn't be. Because it's not a bad thing in the first place. Right. And on maybe, um, 
I guess on the man side of things in terms of how a man should treat and revere motherhood like obviously we should do that but like like Ross said like yeah that isn't easy either you know like there are sacrifices you have to make um, to do that right like you have to respect your mother when she tells you things you don't want to do you know as you're growing up um, you should respect your mother when she like gives you advice as an adult right like you need to respect that that's not always easy you need to step up and like take care of your wife like when she needs you you know as she's certainly around like very motherly things like giving birth and feeding you know taking care of kids like yeah like that's not easy either and like you need to uh, I think we use the term buck up guys <laughs> in terms of uh, yeah I mean I would say I don't know if there's data necessarily on this but yeah if men are more supportive and if men um, valued motherhood, and if men <clears throat> um, were more dutiful in, like, their half of the bargain in relation to, like, children, like, yeah, there would be a lot less abortions, and yeah, there would be a lot more honorable um, relationships and, like, sound families for children to grow up in. Um, so, yeah, as much as we kind of, like, talk about women on this episode and like rightfully so I think it more directly um, affects them but yeah like men like yeah it's not easy for women so like don't be a turd <laughs> and just make it even harder on them you know so I think I'll just add briefly living fertility awareness in my marriage one of the goods that I see from that is that my husband knows where I am in my cycle and respects that and he knows that the possibility like he knows what can come from sex like we both understand that there are no surprises for us um and he also sees the sacrifices that i'm putting in every day um as a mother but he also sees what it's like to be pregnant he knows he's seen me postpartum multiple times now um and he seeks to make himself available and to sacrifice for me. So like, just as a very practical instance, this week I've been schlepping our oldest to Totus Tuus, which is a Catholic summer camp that's half an hour away. Um, I've been driving two hours every day in the car to get him there and back. Uh, and it's been exhausting, especially with my youngest who's seven months old. He's still mostly breastfed and he's been super cranky and it's just been like very draining. So. James just told me this afternoon, like, you know what? I'm just going to take like an hour of PTO tomorrow and I'll take him in and you can just pick him up. Like, that's so helpful to me. <laughs> that's so helpful to me. But he's doing something that's inconvenient for him as a gift to me because he realizes that I'm busting my ass every day to be the best mom I can be for these kids, the best mom to his children. Um, and as part of that, the best wife to him. So... It's like a way drilled down micro level of <laughs> what comes when you respect fertility and motherhood. But that's what it looks like in my life, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, that's cool. That's interesting. Claire, do you have any stories about how great I am? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Claire said nothing. And Reed just had like a long spiel about how awesome James is, and I was kind of like, I kind of feel bad now. But the fact that Claire said nothing about Matt makes me feel pretty good. <laughs> I 
feel like you guys all said some pretty good. Um, I can always cut this out if I get too scared. But I'm, I'm just gonna go with it. So <laughs> don't podcast scared. So recently we had a friend's bachelor party and everyone went around giving uh, marriage advice and uh, one of one of our friends, more of an acquaintance for me, um, he's a counselor and the advice that he gave was don't be afraid to say the word penis and vagina right between between the married couple right and i think in that audience we figured out relatively quickly what he was getting at right but you know he followed up with something like yeah most couples wait six to seven years before they start having those conversations then it's too late and to put a fine point in the cases where it's not obvious to hear that but i think the point it connects this fertility discussion because expressing what one is i can only speculate what one is looking for and needing and wanting in in sex between a couple like that is like sort of awkward and vulnerable like even though you do it all of the time right it's it's still this profoundly like real and speculating overwhelming thing but it is like very real but when one is afraid to talk about it in the way that our friend was encouraging our other friend to not be afraid of it's like it's 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 just immersing yourself even more into the depths of life that we always experience but are so afraid to like really step into for a thousand different that reasons which are like understandable right that we can all identify with um man here's just like just like another it's much lighter and much more benign but it is another example of just just real life exposure <laughs> that's a good metaphor for it but you know at at wakes or visitations and i i've mentioned this before i think in a different podcast episodes with david foster wallace i think but when you had and i think this is unfortunately only with catholic wakes or visitations when you have the genuflector there and I wouldn't say no one ever prays there, but it certainly doesn't feel often. But I'm always intentional about saying a prayer to like right there, kneeling down inches away where you can reach out and touch the body. Because that's why you're there, right? You're not there to spend 30 feet away from the dead body having conversation. I need to have some conversations about nothing, but not like using them as this crutch to try to distract yourself no it's at least for a few moments fully expose yourself to the full weight of life right the metaphor is that yes it's really honestly not that hard to talk about a funeral they happen right but to really expose yourself to that body in the same way with like sex is like yeah, clearly it does not require that much maturity to have sex based upon what we observe in the world. But to actually talk about it in the very real and meaningful ways that can affect your soul and change the course of your life and the course of communities, like that's what takes maturity and responsibility and is inspiring and moving to people. 
that's what Abby Johnson means to most <laughs> <laughs> <stay> on point. <laughs> Claire just told me five really amazing stories about me. So, uh... <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. No. <laughs> so just so you know, they're out there. <laughs> what do we have going on next episode? I believe Mike would be the yeah. person. Mike, what do we got? We got... And that's where I insert it. <laughs> I feel like being on our podcast is kind of seeing how the podcast sausage is made. <laughs> You know, it's like all the random crap that doesn't make it in and, you know, gives me hope that we can someday be a reasonable podcast. I think we're getting there. We'll see. Rachel Bauer texted me and she said she loved last episode. I liked last episode. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. Anne-Marie and Claire, do you guys know who Carrie Gress is? Oh, yes. Do they know who Carrie okay. Gress is? I was going <laughs> to I'm just asking. They no, are she, Carrie Gress. She's awesome. Mansplainer. Have you, uh, have you read any of her books? Can I explain to you what a theology of home should look like? <laughs> her book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, is the single most, uh, the single best book that I read in 2020. And I read 18 books that year, so that was... That was number one. Okay, Anne-Marie and Claire, I'm going to let you guys sign us off for the night. Make sure you get it right, or else you're not coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for drinking. And thinking. With us. It's a a soft G, though. (laughs) Love it. Cue the music one more time. We'll lead us to a better place.